You know, in 1972, um, there, was a, there was a research study done in, at Stanford University, and, and researchers are hysterical. And, and so they, what they wanted to test was the ability for children, five and six-year-olds, to actually delay gratification. And, and what they devised was this thing called the marshmallow test. And maybe you've seen videos of it. And what they did was they would stick a child, a single child, in a room at a table, and on the table would be a marshmallow on a plate. And what they would tell the child is, you can eat this marshmallow right now. Or, if you wait 15 minutes, when we come back, we'll give you a second marshmallow. But if, but if, if, but if you eat the marshmallow on the plate, then that's the only marshmallow you're going to get. You know, so they're going to test this child's ability to like, delay gratification. And, and what we see in the videos, and, and they've, it's been repeated throughout the years with the same results, you know, kids would employ all kinds of tactics to not eat that marshmallow because two is better than one. But the draw of the marshmallow is strong. And, 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 and so it's frustrating for them, and they, they pull their hair, they kick the table, they stop looking at the marshmallow because if I don't look at the marshmallow, it doesn't exist. Or maybe if I just eat a part of the marshmallow, then I, and I could maybe get a second marshmallow, but it just really frustrates these kids. <laughs> And so, what do you think happens? There were 600 children in the original study. How many do you think were able to resist the pull of the marshmallow? 200. Which, you know, if you think about it, five and six-year-olds, that's pretty good. You know, a third of them, I, wouldn't have, I would have guessed much lower than that, but a third of them had the willpower to resist the pull of the marshmallow. But a full two-thirds gave in. And some of them, it was funny, they, the door closed, Boom, in the mouth with the marshmallow. You know, and if we're honest, we're still a lot like those five and six-year-old kids. But let's fast forward to 2020. And in 2020, uh, researchers at UC San Diego performed the same test on five and six-year-olds, except they added a couple of conditions to see if they could get a different result or see if things actually impacted a child's ability to wait. And what they did was they divided them in thirds. In the first group, they said the same thing the original researchers said. We'll be back in, in 15 minutes, and if you can wait, then we'll give you a second marshmallow. And they left the room. But to the second group, they said same thing, except the condition they added was, and when it's over, we're going to tell your classmates how long you were able to wait. And then to the, the last third, they said, we're going to tell your teachers how long you were able to wait. So they did, this, they did the study. So how do you think those conditions impacted these five and six-year-olds ability to wait? Well, significantly, significantly. Both of the conditions of the peer and the, and the teacher were able to last much longer on average than, than the children without those conditions. In fact, what's really fascinating is the group that were told that their teachers would know how long they waited actually waited twice as long on average than the kids in the, in the peer group. So what does that tell us? I think it tells us that kids understand accountability. They understand that if somebody's going to know what they did, then that's probably going to impact what they do. Right? If my mom knows there were five cookies on the plate when she left the room, then I know if I take one, she's going to notice. And so chances are I'm not going to eat a cookie off the plate. I know that somebody's going to know what I did. And again, if we're honest, 
we're just like those five and six-year-old children. If somebody knows what I'm doing, then it changes what I do or what I'm willing to do if somebody's going to know. But if nobody knows, I'm eating the marshmallow. In fact, I'm eating the whole bag because I can buy a bag of marshmallows now. And I can replace that bag with another bag and nobody's going to know. But I'm going to know. And in fact, if I eat a whole bag of marshmallows, I'm probably not feeling very good. Well, I'm not probably feeling very good, but I'm not feeling very good about myself anyway. I'm disgusted with myself because I really didn't need to eat a whole bag of marshmallows. And so if I'm honest with myself, I really do desire accountability. I need accountability. And I would say the same thing is true of all of you. In fact, I would say you have gone to great lengths to have accountability in your life. You call them teachers, you call them trainers, you call them coaches, you, you take classes, you call them boss, right? You call them husband, you call them wife, you call them children, but they hold you accountable to the things that you really desire to do. If you really desire something, an outcome, you will go to great lengths, will you not, to be held accountable. In fact, you'll spend thousands of dollars to be held accountable to something that you really desire to see happen. Is that not true? And that's something we see all throughout Scripture take place. We serve a God who holds His creation accountable. And, and we see what happens when His creation, when His people decide not to be held accountable, decide to ignore, like, you don't exist, God. And we see it doesn't go well. We see their lives turn upside down. But we also see that when they do follow after God, that we see that human flourishing happens, and not just within their own community, but elsewhere. And we also see this command to hold one another accountable in Jesus' own words. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is being taken back up into heaven, and he turns to his disciples and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go in my authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he finishes with, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Can you see the command for accountability here? Maybe you don't see it, so I'll point it out. Uh, teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. If all we're commanded to do is to teach people about Jesus, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, then that's just educating. That's all that is. But if we're actually going to teach people to obey, to actually put his words into practice, to actually do what Jesus said, which is what Jesus said, was to do what he said. Don't just listen to my words, but actually put them into practice. If we're actually going to do what Jesus said, then we need to teach one another to obey. We need to hold one another accountable to obeying Jesus' commands. It requires accountability. It requires someone else to walk alongside of me because Jesus knows us. 
He knows I'll eat the whole bag. And I'll find plenty of ways to distract myself to find other things more important to do than to go and make disciples. And he knows that if we're going to do that, if we're actually going to go and make disciples as he's commanded us to do, then we're going to need one another to hold us accountable to doing that. Because if left to our own, we'll find a lot of other things to do. And so for these next four weeks, we want to talk about this value of accountability because we see it all over the scriptures. And, and we see the result of actually being accountable to one another. And so this morning, as we begin, I'd ask if you would bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we gather in this name of Jesus, and we gather to hear your word. But not just hear your word, we gather to be challenged by your word, to sit and allow your word to soak into our hearts and, and, and melt that crust around our hearts. And we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would mold us and shape us more into the image of your son, that you would give us a spirit of boldness a willingness to be held accountable, not just by you, but by others. And so, Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. When I talk about accountability, what do I mean? I love this definition because I think definitions help us understand better. This accountability is about delivering on a commitment. It's responsibility to an outcome, not just a set of tasks. So it's two parties agreeing to come together and commit to an outcome, not just to, not just to a, a thing, but actually to see something happen. We're going to commit for the purpose of seeing what it is we're committing to come to fruition. And at Trinity, in this context, we say it this way. We want to help one another look, live, and love more like Jesus. That's our commitment to one another, that we've come together, and our commitment to each other is to help one another Look, live, and love more like Jesus. Why? For what purpose? For what outcome? We say so that lives are changed, families are changed, communities are changed, and the world is changed. Why do we desire to hold one another accountable? Why do we desire to help one another look, live, and love more like Jesus? So that people who don't know Jesus can come to know him so that we together share the good news of the gospel, so that we together grow up more into the image of Jesus. And as Paul says in Ephesians, we grow up more into his likeness. And as we do that, the whole church rises in its ability to make disciples. And as we said in this series, the whole tide rises as we do this together. That was God's plan from the very beginning, is that we wouldn't do this alone, but we would do this together, if we truly desire to see more people come to saving faith in Jesus, would we not welcome accountability? If we truly desire to see people come to a saving faith in Jesus. And what's great about this value is that we serve a God who's not only accountable, but he's accountable to himself. There's no greater authority, no higher bar of accountability than God himself. Because scripture tells us he never lies. 
He never goes back on his word. Whatever he promises will happen. We can count on it. And so we serve and we have the greatest accountability partner because we know he will always be there. If we desire to get in shape, if we truly desire to get in shape, we're going to call a friend who is a workout fiend because they're there five days a week. And we know that if we tell them to hold us accountable, they're going to be there. Now, if we really don't want to get in shape, we call somebody who doesn't work out and say, hey, I got an idea. We should go work out. But if we really want to be held accountable, we want someone who will be there. And God is always there. Whether we show up or not, he is there waiting for us. And we see that beautifully, his faithfulness played out in the scripture you heard Walt read just a few minutes ago, where God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. See, God in Genesis chapter 12 calls Abram out of this Mesopotamian culture to be a people for himself. And he promises Abraham at the age of 85, at 75 to make him a father, which at that time they'd had no children, but to make him a father of many nations. In fact, his name Abram means a father to be exalted. And so he calls Abram out, and Abram leaves his homeland. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God comes back to Abram, and he says, Abram, I will make you a father of many nations. In fact, he said, come outside. Look up into the heavens. Look at the stars. Your descendants will be greater than the stars in the sky. And we're told that Abram believes God, or believes God, and God credits, credits his faith as righteousness. But then God doesn't stop there. He says to Abram, not only will I make your name great, not only will I make your descendants numerous, but I will give you this land. And it will be an inheritance for you and for your children. And, and Abram says to God at that point, he says, well, how will I know that I'm to take this land, or we are to take this land? And this is what God says to Abram. He says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought those, th these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now, like, what is going on here? This seems kind of like, grotesque and really unnecessary. But in this ancient Hebrew culture, this is the way they sealed a covenant. That's what's happening here. God is making a covenant, this relationship between two parties, both parties agreeing to the commitment. And, and so Abram knows this is what God is up to. God has promised to make Abram a father of many nations. He's promised to give him this land, and now he's going to seal that promise with this covenant ceremony. And, and, and so what is happening here, so like today, when we agree to something with one another, we say, trust me, it'll happen, right? And if you, if you know someone, that works. But if you don't know someone, it's like, yeah, I'm not so sure. How about signing this contract? You know, so if, if, if I don't pay you every month, you can come take my house. But if I pay you every month, you won't come take my house. In fact, I'll pay you long enough, and then the house is mine, and I don't have to pay you anymore. But that's all written out in a contract, and we sign those to hold the parties accountable. Well, that's what's happening here. They, they take these animal carcasses, they cut them in half, 
and they lay them out apart from each other, forming an aisle. And the covenant ceremony in this ancient Hebrew culture, both parties would walk through these pieces. The, most, the, the party with the greatest honor would walk through first. And as they walk through these pieces, what they're saying to one another is, if I don't hold up my end of this covenant, if I don't hold up to my end, then you can do to me what we did to these animals. That's what God is telling Abram that's going to happen. So you want to know if you're going to take this land? We will seal this with a promise. If you want to know that you're going to inherit this land, how you're going to know is I'm telling you, you will. And I'll seal it with this ceremony. And so Abram cuts up the animals, lays them apart, sits down, and waits because the person of greatest honor goes first. So he's waiting for God to show up. And he waits all day. And, and finally darkness comes and he falls asleep. And, and he's sitting there and in, in darkness and he's sleeping and this dread comes over him and he wakes up. And we're told this is what he sees. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, and on and on and on. And so we see God saying to Abraham, or Abram at this point, that if I don't keep my, my end of this promise, Abram, you can do to me what we did to these pieces. And we know that because this smoking fire pot and this blazing torch is representative of God. We see over and over again in the Old Testament fire and smoke as a representation of God, as a symbol of God's presence. And we'll see that from this story forward. And so when he sees this smoking fire pot and this blazing torch floating between these pieces, he knows it's the Lord, his God, walking through. And he knows that he's next. Except we're told that after God goes through the pieces, God made a covenant with Abraham. And that's where the story ends. And so you're left to go, well, wait a minute. I thought this was a covenant. Where is it that Abraham was required to walk through these pieces? Well, he wasn't. And so you wonder, well, well then how is that a covenant? Because that's only one party. But what we see by God not requiring Abram to walk through the pieces, God making another promise. He says to Abram, he says, now Abram, if you don't hold up your end, then you can do to me what we did to these animals. God not only commits to his own word to hold himself accountable, he calls, holds himself accountable if Abraham doesn't keep up his end. And so what happens? Well, Abram doesn't keep up his end of the covenant. And neither does any of his descendants. Over and over and over again, they break the covenant of God. And so what does God do? He holds himself accountable to his word. And 2,000 years later, he marches his own son up a hill, keeping his promise to Abram and sacrificing his son on a cross thereby keeping the promise that if you, Abram, and your descendants don't keep up your end, you can do to me what we did to these pieces. 
And not only to Abram and his descendants, but to the entire world, God says, if you don't keep up your end of this relationship with me, then you can do to me what we did to those animals in Genesis chapter 15. And God, 2,000 years after that covenant, kept his promise. And we see in this story of Abram and, and, and God that he is the ultimate promise keeper. He is the true accountability partner. And he knows us. He knows, if left to our own, that, that we would never keep up our end. In fact, we can't keep up our end without his help, which is why he sent his son. Not only so that he could be proven right, but so that we could be saved. See, he does this not for his benefit, but he does it for our benefit. He does it to his own detriment. He disadvantages himself to our advantage. And we see in the person of Jesus Christ the promise that God always keeps his promises. And we can trust him when he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. How do we know that? Because the Lord your God has said so. That's how we know. Because he never goes back on his word. And Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. How will we know that? Because Jesus said so. And how, Lord, can we make disciples? If you go and teach one another to obey, you will produce much fruit. How is that possible? Because Jesus said so. He says to his disciples, he says to us this morning, if you truly desire to see the world come to know who he is and what God has done for the world, then would you not welcome accountability into your life if you truly desire to see people come to faith in Jesus? Would you not welcome accountability? You would, you would not see it as a burden, but a, as a blessing in your life? You know, we say we want to help people look, live, and love more like Jesus, and so we want to do that because there are millions and literally billions of people who don't know Jesus. And, and, and as Christians, we cannot sit around and say, that's not my job, it's not my gift. We have the Spirit of God living in us. He didn't just send us out on our own with together to do this. He puts his spirit inside of us so that we now can obey him. And not because we're good people or because we promised we wouldn't eat the marshmallow, but because he is a faithful God. He gives us his spirit to empower us to actually go and make disciples, to actually invite accountability into our life. But he knows us. And he knows that we need other people around us because if left to our own, <laughs> we'll find plenty of reasons not to make disciples, not to teach people to actually obey his word, but to know his word. But if we truly desire, as God desires, that all men come to a faith in Jesus Christ, then we should welcome accountability into our lives. And, and so in that vein, I want to let you know we have students this weekend out in the parking lot writing down license plates. And so we want to invite you to come back next week. And I say that because it's in a loving way we want to hold you accountable to, to really embracing accountability.
seriously, because the mission is urgent. It is more urgent today than it has ever been. And believe it or not, He's given us a responsibility to make a difference, to actually change the world. And we're told as we do that together, as we grow up to look more like His Son, lives are changed and and families are changed and communities are changed and eventually the world changes. So come back next week. Embrace accountability. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word and Your faithfulness. We thank You and And we sing at times, great is thy faithfulness. And that word great sounds so small when compared to you. You continue to disadvantage yourself. You continue to show up knowing that we're looking elsewhere. And so, Father, we we confess to you this morning that we find all kinds of excuses to to ignore your call on our life. We find all kinds of excuses to seek after our own, our own desires. And so, Father, we confess those sins to you this morning. And, and we do so because we know that you are faithful and you are just and you are true and you promise that if we confess that you are faithful and you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, we know your word is true. While even though we may not feel it, we know it's true. And so we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we turn to the Lord's Supper in this service, we turn to a meal that is literally a reminder of the promise that God made to Abram 4,000 years ago, where he said to Abram, if, if, if you don't keep up your end, Abram. You can do to me what we did to these animals. And, and this meal is a reminder that God kept his word. It's a reminder that he gave his own son. We're called to remember Jesus, to remember the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abram. We are the descendants of Abram. We are the recipients of that promise. And this morning in this meal, we actually receive his body and his blood with the bread and wine. And I know we ask, well, how is that even possible? And, and, and Jesus says, because I said so. <laughs> because I said, this is my body, this is my blood. And so we trust him because he is the great promise keeper. And so that night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and the meal. And when he broke it, he blessed and gave it to his disciples as he gives to you. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. It's been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat the body of Jesus given for you. And after supper, he took a cup of wine, and when he blessed, he gave it to his disciples as he gives to you this morning, and he said, take and drink. This cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. It's been poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink of it, remember me. Take and drink the blood of Jesus shed for you. My prayer for you this morning is that this body and this blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would strengthen you, would keep you in that one true faith. And my prayer for you this morning who did not commune with us, that you would continue to explore, continue to understand the promise of God and the implications upon your life that you could come to know the love the Lord your God has for you. My prayer is for you 
and all of your children and their children and their children, that they may know and that you would teach them to obey everything that God has commanded you. I pray that for Jesus' sake and for theirs. Amen.